support PodNuts by going to podnuts.com slash Amazon. It'll take you straight to Amazon, do your normal shopping, but with every purchase, you'll be supporting PodNuts. Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 15. The show where we cover hard drives from A to Z, I guess you could say. Uh, we field your questions, you know, we take, we handle voicemails, and most importantly, we have the utmost expert in the field, in my opinion, and I think many people will agree with me as well, um, who brings the goods to the show, and that's Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. Hey, Scott. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good what, to see you. What is new with you? Oh, I've just been really busy dealing with solid-state drives mostly these days. Tons of questions about those, which I'm sure we'll get into here in the show. So how about you? I'm doing decent. Doing decent, you know, doing a little working out, feeling good, getting the body in shape. Oh, that's good. Something that's good to know. Much... I don't have time to work out. I spend all my time in a lab soldering boards and fixing hard drives. It'll take its toll on you. Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can imagine you're getting so many questions about solid-state drives. I mean... You go to the stores these days, and I don't know. There's there's just more and more on the shelf, like on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a well. You know, one of the biggest things has been that uh, over the last uh, month or so, there's been two papers that were published on solid state drives and how they're how they're destroying data, basically, and how it's actually stopping forensics and data recovery people from doing their jobs. And so that was kind of the whole beginning of this, because uh, at least from the busy side, because I've been getting more and more shipped to me. I've been getting questions. Uh, I've been getting you know lots of requests for podcasts, um, all t- because of solid state. Because as you probably know, I did these animated presentations back in 2005 and 2006, and I said all that same stuff. And basically, I did this DEF CON presentation about how solid-state drives destroy your data, and they're going to destroy forensics and data recovery jobs. And so now it just seems kind of funny that we're looking at almost five years after I did this, and my stuff is still all exactly, fundamentally exactly the same, even with all the changes that we've had over all this time. Damn. That's saying something for uh, (laughs) for the knowledge you had back then. For the, the billion dollars of research I did back in <laughs> 2005. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, so, but that's been kind of what spurned all this uh, recent stuff on. Uh, I've always been getting solid state drives, thumb drives, and uh, solid state disks in for recovery, but certainly more lately than any other time before. So, I've been spending way more time researching them, taking them apart, resoldering stuff, examining the content on them. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of things we can talk about over, over this thing, uh, over the next uh, hour here in this podcast. But, uh, but a lot of this uh, all has to do with this research that was done. Uh, this one paper is called Solid State Drives, the Beginning of the End of Current Digital Forensics Practices. And the other one is called uh, Reliably Erasing Data from Flash-Based Solid State Drives. And you wrote these? No, no. Uh, these were published by two other people. One, one's, well, a group of people. One is done for the Journal of Digital Forensics, and it was published by Graham Bell and Richard Boddington. And that one's, uh, I believe, that one is from Australia, and it's actually a research paper that was done on forensics uh, testing the controller chips and the content that was coming off of them during the process of doing uh, an erasure, uh, uh, garbage collection routines, and what was going to be available when they were done. And there's so there's a lot of misconceptions out there in the world from a standpoint of what was actually happening. So I guess they were trying to write a paper with some sound testing to actually show that. And then the other paper was written by Michael Wee, Laura Grump, uh, Frederick Spa, and Stephen Swanson, and they're from uh, University of California. And their whole test was all um, more based on the hardware, what's actually happening when data is being erased from the flash drive and actually how that content is going to disappear. And the funny thing is these two papers, while they fundamentally sound different, like the titles and stuff, yeah. they they uh, and one sounds more positive than the other one. They both basically are saying the same thing, and they both basically come down to the fact of, you know, what happens during this garbage collection routine and what actually happens when you're erasing a solid-state disk and, you know, what happens to living data that's on your disk as it's being erased or the operating system is letting things go free. In the past, in forensics, we've always had uh, unallocated space and something called slack space. And when I say that, what I mean is um, 
when you when you delete a file, uh, it basically has a couple of processes it goes through before it's completely deleted. So if I delete something and it goes to the trash bin, then it's not actually erased. It's still in the trash bin. Then when you release it from the trash bin, you have a whole nother cycle that actually happens as the deleted file uh, is still a record in the MFT. So the master file table on Windows, per se, will uh, track this deleted file until eventually it needs the space and it overwrites it. And then the pointer still uh, might point to something that's not that file anymore and just doesn't exist. And eventually you get to a spot where it's unallocated. It doesn't show up anywhere. And it's just in the un unused space on the drive, just the free space that's sitting out there. And this is something that has been the meat and potatoes of forensic stuff for a long time. So you would actually get to a spot where you would go, uh, okay, fine, let's see what he's deleted over time. And then we'll compare that for his habits to you know, see what he's been doing or you know, in a criminal case or something like that, they'll use that content. Um, there's also another area of a drive that's called, or what we do in forensics when we're actually capturing uh, files from the file system, uh, there will be the file that actually gets written currently is normally smaller than the amount of space that's actually allocated to store the file in the cluster. And what ends up happening is we have this area that's not overwritten. So you'll have, say, a file that's this long, and you've written a new file, and it's only this long. Right. This free space that's sitting over here is still there. It basically still sits there with whatever the content was that was originally there, and we call that file slack space. And what ends up happening in this case with solid state drives in both instances of the file slack space and uh, the unallocated space is that eventually, as you're writing data, it becomes zero, that there's nothing there. So the reason is, is a hard drive is fairly lazy in the process that it does. It doesn't overwrite anything that currently exists. It only writes what you ask it to write. So it overwrites the content that currently exists on the drive, leaving the rest of it alone. Right. In solid-state drives, you can't do that. In solid-state drives, you can't write to an existing sector where data currently already exists because there's electrons stored in cells and they, they can't be released. So you have to release an entire block at a time in order to erase them. So what ends up happening is the data basically says, okay, fine, I opened a Word document, and I can't make any changes to this Word document and write them back to the exact same location that it just came from. So if I made a change to it, now I've got to write it into a new location. And when it writes it into the new location, by definition, that new location was blank, that there was nothing in those cells. Those right. cells were already blank. And so what ends up happening is the slack space and the unallocated space just disappears and never has any data in it anymore uh, over time. And it really depends on these algorithms in the software that are written that are in these control chips that sit on your solid state drive or your USB thumb drive and when they're going to kick in and when they're going to erase the data so they can make room for new data. How, how and, big are these blocks that get you know re erased every time? Well, the uh, block size, uh, when a manufacturer is building their device, they basically get to choose which of a variety of chips that they're going to use. Now, all the chips are fundamentally the same. The only difference is the size of these blocks. So it's all based on sector size. So normally, like a hard drive has 512 bytes of data, and it's pretty much remained the same throughout our eternity of having hard drives. It's been 512 bytes of data. It doesn't have to be. It could be anything. But primarily, that's what we're dealing with. Um, and there are some new hard drives that do have 4K sectors, but they still only deliver 512 bytes back to you. Uh, so they so it's remained 512 bytes. In solid-state drives, uh, they, there's too much material for them to track for every sector to remain 512 bytes. So they expanded those, and they did them in denominations of 2K, 4K, 8K, and so on and so on. Okay. And traditionally, when the manufacturer chooses to buy a solid-state chip to put, or a NAND chip to put on their solid-state disk, um, they choose them based on these sector sizes. So they would say, I would like the 2K version, the 4K version, or the 8K version, depending on what they're tracking and how much, you know, from a material standpoint that they want to spend because uh, they're more expensive depending on what you do from MLCs and LSLCs and so on and so on. Uh, and those are, you know, single layers and, and multi-layer basically. So, so, uh, so they're done in multiples of these block sizes and the multiplier usually is uh, 64. So in other words, if you have a 2K, your block size is going to be 2K times 64, so 128K. And that's the block size that has to be erased 
in order to write something new to it. I see. So if you chose a 4K, then you've got to multiply that by 64. Huh. And so, so those are the block sizes that have to be erased before the content can be written to them. Interesting. So, so this is one of the driving factors between you know these two papers that are focusing on solid state and going down this path. Uh, one of them, like I've said, is focusing on what actually happens when you do, say, a quick erase and how much data is left, how long does it take, and you know they did some tests where you know it may only take three minutes for the majority of the data to be purged from the device. Uh, whereas in many cases, some of us were expecting it to be a little longer. That you know maybe it was doing it during some idle times or some other some other less intensive times, and it may take an hour. Uh, I've seen some instances where a true solid-state drive actually may take a lot longer. It uh, it seems to diminish over a 30-day period of time on some of my tests. Really? Uh, but those those are solid-state disks, not thumb drives. And so those are you know more complex in nature, and the code tends to be uh, something that's manipulated a little bit differently. Uh, in other words, there's from one version to the next the code may be completely different on how they're actually going to handle this and what's actually going to happen uh, with the with the erasure process because right. that's all a piece of code. Is that you mentioned garbage collection in the beginning? Is that what you meant? Yes, uh, garbage collection. Um, so to define the garbage collection, what it basically means is you have a table that's tracking what is currently in use, and then as you delete a file or if a change is made, and that sector or group of sectors for the block now becomes unusable because you've moved your content, then there is a routine that tracks how many on this block are already unused, that are already no longer able to be uh, written to until the entire block is tracked. And then when the entire block is tracked and it says that everybody's moved off of the block, now we're going to delete that block. And there is a queue that basically, you know, just like any other line that you would expect, there is a, a segment that actually goes to the end of the line and it says, okay, I know you're erasing these other sectors and so these other blocks, and when you're done with those, I'm next. And so then that block will be queued up to be erased. And so depending on how fast the device is and how, uh, how uh, your code is written from a standpoint of being, uh, you know, a timing standpoint, like I'm doing other stuff on the drive and now something else is going on, this routine is called the garbage collection routine, and it will be queued up to run as soon as possible so that it can free up space right. before something else has been written to it. And the more full that your solid state drive is, the more important speed is for this particular device. Because uh, so once you've actually filled up your drive, you you move into a state that this device now always needs to erase something before it can write something else. And so once you've actually hit this state where this thing is basically going to stay in this uh, ready-to-write state is constantly looking for these sectors to erase and delete. And that is the function of the garbage collection routine is to uh, expedite the process of running these queues that are waiting to be purged. So is it is it possible if you buy a brand new drive and it's running great, you know, and then you st it starts to get full, it's going to slow up. Um, it, it has a potential to slow up drastically because the, the way that the code that they use to run these functions are these purging functions are not are differ from company to company, or that they just because they have to do it in the first place means the drive is going to go slower. You are absolutely 100% correct. The, uh, that, is, that is very intuitive of you to get to that spot pretty quickly. See, Scott's uh, proud of me on that one. Yes, I am proud of you. So, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, yes, exactly what happens uh, as the drive fills up, it will get slower and slower and slower because this process does have to run, and it's very important for how fast that this, you know, and from drive to drive, maybe even slower. Um, so, you're right that that code, and we're also talking generations too, because we're at our fourth and fifth generation now of solid state hard drives, and the first generations were extremely slow and really bad. And during the process of doing this, you can actually have you know write failures that cause you know if this was on a high speed device like a video camera or something, you may have uh, an impact from that as it's trying to write and can't keep up with the device as it's erasing this content. I see. So so uh, there have been algorithms that have had to be rewritten for, say, a DVR or a, a camera and how they actually store things, which would be more 
circular in pattern. So in other words, it you know started at the beginning, it started writing a file. When it gets to the end of the disk, then it can loop back. So that's the way some DVRs actually work, even with hard drives, is so that they always are contiguous and they're just looping through. I uh, see. So but the head doesn't have to move. Right. When you're when you're on a hard drive and that the hard drive it, as you wrote data and your operating system is tracking things, it does this. It moves back and forth quite a bit. Right. And it causes some thrashing and also causes some latency issues for the head to read and write data right. to the drive and and directly to the disk because it's got to move back and forth. Whereas if your algorithm says, you know, write this file and it's logical all the way across, then it's going to be very smooth. The head's huh. just going to move slowly across the disk right. and it's not not going to have the latency problems that you would have from an operating systems function. Right. That's interesting. So, right. And that's a big impact in solid state disks as well, uh, which, you know, and that brings up another factor too, which is, you know, operating systems tend to try to move and shuffle the files around according to uh, the way a normal hard drive works. Right. So the outside edge of a disk is faster than the inside edge of the disk, um, not because it's spinning faster, because it's not. It's spinning at the same speed, uh, constant angular velocity. But it is because of the uh, content on the outside edge of the disk, where the content is stored, there is more sectors that are available. Right, okay. So, so as you keep your head to the outside edge, you can read and write more content to it um, without moving the head. So you have less latency. And so our operating system, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen Windows XP, Windows 7. They do this whole process where they say, hey, I see you use that Word file quite a bit. Let's move that to the outside edge. And right. it does this defragmentation process on its own, shuffling that stuff to the outside edge of the disk. Um, this stuff is extremely detrimental to the solid state disks. The uh, solid-state disks, will, they have a finite number of times that you can write to that sector, to that cell, uh, before the cell will die. And if your process is completely in this defragmentation process, it will just destroy data that is no more valuable to it if it was sitting someplace else on the disk versus the beginning of the disk. Do, do operating systems, are they smart enough right now, operating systems, to know not to do this, or are they destroying drives left and right? They... Uh, the only fundamental one that has added, and and uh, you know, I don't want to piss off Linux people again because I know you have a lot of Linux people too. But uh, Linux has added some things to do some determinations to tell whether or not it's a solid state disk, so that it can try to do less of these processes. Yeah. Uh, but this is another reason the EXT4 has actually come out is because of the detrimental processes that actually happen with EXT3 on Linux systems, they'll actually do more damage to the disk. EXT4 basically removes some of the metadata and some of the updating so that there's less damage to it. And uh, EXT4 has a detection process where you can actually say, and it doesn't work for all drives. The issue is, is that um, the drives prior to this last generation had no way to tell you, I'm not a spinning disk, I am a solid state disk. And so actually Microsoft had partitioned to add a command to the ATA spec, to the uh, the standard ATA specs that we actually use for how to communicate with a hard drive uh, done by the committee that actually uh, decides what commands are going to be available. They asked for a command called trim. And trim is a command that basically says, and you can't, and it does some other things. There's some fundamental things it does to increase performance on solid state disks and do less damage. But one of its primary things is that you can request, hey, if you support trim, tell me you're a solid state drive. And it will say yes. And so right now, the only, the only operating system in Windows that supports this is really Windows 7. Windows 7 has the command built in. If it detects trim is enabled on the drive, then it will do things automatically to stop destroying the disk and to uh, to allow it to live a little bit longer. And so some of the other operating systems are starting to implement the same checks, basically, that Windows has. Uh, the closest you're going to get right now is Linux having EXT3, moving to EXT4, and trying to do this check. You have some robustness. Um, Macs really don't check um, any of that right now. Currently, right now, I don't know of any commands or anything in HFS that actually says, oh, look, I see your uh, 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 solid-state disk. Let's not destroy you. Hmm. It still looks like they're heading down that path, and at some point, maybe they'll implement uh, some sort of a check or something to do that. But Macs are, you know, Macs do a lot of defragmentation. Uh, three minutes after a Mac is booted, it will search for files that are smaller than 20 megs, and it will start defragmenting them right away. So there's always some potential now 
that doing this defragmentation process is going to cause more damage on some of the solid state discs that are out there. It's interesting. They're still too new though, aren't they? They that to really see if this is hap- going to happen in the long term, or is well, it? Well, in the long term, we know there's going to be uh, death. There's going right. to be great deaths in <laughs> solid state families. Um, we've seen quite a few of them already in the past, and everybody in the marketing committees and stuff like that now says, "No, these are going to live a lot longer, and uh, these are going to live 51 years, and blah blah blah." And those are all lies. Uh, really, um, no matter what you see in marketing material and them telling you how robust the drive is, it's all software, and it's all you know. And you should know now, you know, software is the magic. You know, uh, you know, you've got to ignore whatever's going on in the little smoky software magic window that they have. There is uh, the hardware has not changed. The hardware is fundamentally exactly the same as it was 30 years ago. It has not changed pretty much the entire lifespan of this hardware, other than uh, expanding the size. And by expanding the size, we've caused an infinitely larger group of cells to die. In other <laughs> words, so. Up until, say, four or five years ago, we had what's called SLCs. And SLCs, you can kind of think of as um, a single-story house. And you have to put all your stuff in the single-story house. And then they said, well, we need bigger. We need more in the same space. We don't have enough room to uh, – because we have – you know, we only own this much land. So this much land is here. We're going to start building up. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to build a second story. And those are called MLCs. Now, they're not really two stories high. What they really did was they just jammed more people into the same rooms. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, so if you have two people in a room, then you have a higher measurement than you have when you have one person in a room. Right. And so what's happened now is when you had SLC and you had the single-layer house, you could write – somebody could live in that room 100,000 times. That's the actual number. 100,000 times you can go in and out of the door before the door will fall off its hinges. And so when they went to MLCs, that went from 100,000 writes to 10,000 writes. So it dropped as drives got bigger. Hmm. So this is a major problem now because every drive that's currently made uh, is, in order for you to get to 64 gigs and 128 gigs and 256 gigs, they have to be MLCs. Buying an SLC is normally going to be a much larger device and way, way more expensive. Um, so you lose the, uh, you lose this 10,000, you know, from 10,000 to a hundred thousand, you lose 90,000 possible rights. Uh, and it all has to be cached in memory and then written out at some point in time. So some of them are getting smarter by saying, we've got memory, let's cache it in memory and not write these transactions until we're done at some point. So right. that we don't, we don't make 10 rights that we don't need to make. Right. And so yeah. that's where they're saying, oh yes, we're 10 times better than we used to be. Well, <laughs> No, you're not. Uh, it's the same or worse, but now you're just, you know, you may maintain it in memory or something uh, instead of writing it directly at this point. Is there different levels of MLC that would take the number lower from 10,000 even lower, or is that pretty much where it stops? No, uh, after MLC, there's something called triple bit. And so now you've gone to three layers. And so there is a three-story house. And in a triple bit, uh, you now have diminished your rights down to 5,000. Oh, man. So as you keep getting now, triple bit, we're really only looking at in the last year or so, triple bit and up to, they now, I have seen one called uh, octal bit or something. They can now write eight levels, uh, which what's happening really is you have the container and the container is the same size. And what you're doing is, let's say in the SLCs, you would be able to say store 600 electrons. And this is multiple electrons being stored in a single cell. And then it measures the cell. And so uh, basically you're going to store if, – if the maximum you can store is 600 electrons, at 300 electrons, you've stored enough for it to be called uh, on. Or in this case, it would actually be off because they're, they're one when they're blank and they're zero when they're full. Okay. And so, uh, so it's the opposite of what you would think. Normally we say zero is empty. Right. Well, that's in this case not true. It's the opposite. They're one when they're – when they're blank and they're zero when they're full. And so if you had 300 electrons and you've now reached that, you know, threshold between 300 and 600 on an SLC, then you've got a charge. Well, what they did was they expanded that and they said, well, let, you know, we, now we can store 1200 electrons in the same cell. And now we're going to read a measurement that says, if you're at 300, then you're one charge. If you're at 600, then you're at another charge, you know, and so on and so on. I see. 
And so you're actually doing more damage because you're shoving more electrons into the same amount of space and doing more damage to the to the silicon uh, as it's going through this process. Well, let me ask you this then, because as the these SLC MLCs can store more data than MLCs, right? They're, they they uh, want they want bigger no. drives. I mean, well, they they can't store more data. They uh they are smaller actually in in essence, but they are much faster because oh, okay. they're single okay. layer. Um, you you lose forty percent of your speed moving to an MLC. Oh, uh, okay, so it's worse. And you and you also save money because there's no there's no more extra work from a standpoint. So in other words, yeah. an MLC, let's say let's say you bought a sixty four gig MLC chip, it it may be fifty bucks, and you buy a you know the same thing in an SLC, maybe one hundred and ninety dollars. Um, and so it's a lot more expensive to buy SLC because it's a lot more robust and it's going to last a lot longer and it's faster. I see. It is it is the fastest of your choices. And so the only way you make MLC faster is to add more RAM, actual DRAM. Uh, DRAM, like we use in our computer, that you would use for a buffer on a hard drive or on a solid state drive, is up to 300 times faster than our current solid state hard drives are. Damn. So that's where we lose, you know, that that kind of space from that standpoint when right. you're actually. So uh, and, and and again, this was kind of one of those things with uh, some of the tests. You know, some of the tests were looking more at what happens to this data and when it gets erased and what actually transpires. And everything centers around the NAND chips that are flash that are the component that we're writing to are the same for everything, whether it's USB, thumb drives, or a solid-state disk. They're all the same. What's different is this little chip that's basically the controller chip that you actually have. The controller chip, because it's software, from one manufacturer to another may do something completely different on huh. the chip. And the speed may be different, and how it erases content may be Damn, different. Damn, that's crazy for you, right? You have to learn separate techniques for every manufacturer? Almost exactly. Every single, every time that I do a solid state disk, I have to sit there and pour over it in hex and try to figure out if I can tell what these interleaves are and see if I can figure oh, out. Man. Yeah. And so it's very, very time consuming to go through trying to figure these things out. And we haven't gotten to a spot yet where there's enough redundancy and there's enough for us to say, well, I already solved this problem. I can just do the same thing again. And so we're not at a spot where we can yet say, I'm going to do the same thing that I did yesterday. That's and crazy, man, for a business. It's tough. It, 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 it's extremely difficult. You know, on hard drives, I may only spend uh, four to eight hours rebuilding a hard drive, replacing heads, doing things like that, uh, fixing boards, trying to repair those things. And, uh, and you know, typically I'm doing a flat rate, so typically I'm charging $800 to fix a hard drive and uh, and get that data back. In a, you know, let's say you send in a thumb drive, and I've got to go through this whole process of desoldering the chip. That's if if I can't fix it some other way, because uh, part of the thing is is that most of the damage to a thumb drive or something that's sent in to me, it's physical damage. Uh, it's you know a board is cracked or somebody pulled a pen or something like that. Hmm. And so if I can find what's wrong with the device, I can fix the device. Right. But uh, but you know the last resort is basically you have to desolder the RAM itself, the NAND from the board, and put it in a reader. Then you image it like you do a hard drive, and then you pour over it and you analyze it, and then you have these algorithms to try to reassemble. Jeez. And uh, and right now there's like, uh, I don't know, uh, 700 or algorithms or something like that. It's, uh, it's grown quite a bit. And uh, so we have some tools to try to help us do that, but they're not automated in any way just about. You pretty much have to do it yourself for is every it, single step. Is there any future of having a standard for these or is there any anybody pushing for that or why the companies don't want to because then they lose they might lose their advantage over another company? Well, uh, partially you're right there. The problem with the standard is is that since all of this is done in software, everybody's code is like, you know, everybody who wrote it wants to be the best. Right. They want everybody to buy theirs. So in other words, SanDisk wants to sell their code to 75 other vendors and get paid for that. And the other 75 vendors go, you know, screw you, SanDisk. We're going to write our own. And so because there is no actual standards body, there is nothing that demands that these things be exactly the same. All the code is different from one to the other to the next one. The only thing that's even somewhat similar is because they know they got to plug into a computer, there's some requests that the computer makes that those standards, they have to do something. Right. So in other words, but there's no, there's nothing that says how they have to do it. 
So in other words, when it makes a request and it says, I want to read this sector, there's nothing that says this sector has to be in the same place twice or anything like that. So the code and the content can move those things around so that you no longer you no longer have the same thing. And this is really the problem is that, you know, we're at the beginning of a cycle where, you know, hard drive manufacturers have bought everybody up and the stuff has basically been uh, done over time. But in solid state, we're at the beginning of everybody wanting money for their development. And so they all hope they're going to win is pretty much the point. So there's no standard. There's no, there's nothing that's the same. The only, the closest thing you might get is if somebody bought two of the same controller chips or something, that's about the closest you're going to get. I see. It's pretty so messed up. It's, it's even really hard for us to do what we would normally call donor rebuilds. Like we, on a hard drive, we find another hard drive that's exactly the same as that hard drive and we rip out the motor or whatever else yeah. we need and put it in the other hard drive. Well, in this case, um, you can't really locate. All you see is a black case around your memory stick. And then you're like, well, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> you know, you don't know till you open it right. if they're the same. And even after that, and sometimes until you desolder the chips and try to image them and look at them, you don't know that they're any different than, than the other one. Well, I got to say, man, I mean, for sounds like for what you're doing in your business so far that you're st- – <laughs> You're going to be okay because you're staying ahead of the curve. I mean, I, I could I could see some guys who do what you do just throwing their hands up and going, "Okay, I'm going doing something else." Because- yeah, it's a it's a tough job, and it's you know the, I think the hardest part out of all of it is actually the money. Uh, the issue is, you know, on a hard drive where I was only spending four to eight hours to rebuild a hard drive, um, normally I might get it accomplished and be able to get the the recovery done, and I get paid eight hundred dollars for you know. Whatever. If I spent four hours, great. I did two hundred dollars an hour. If I did eight, it was a hundred dollars an hour. But uh, when I do solid state, it takes you know six to eight hours just to just to get this chip off, image the chip, and try to do something with it to make sure because you're soldering and you're desoldering very small things. By the time you're actually done desoldering it, imaging it, and trying to review it, you may have already spent six or seven hours. And people only want to pay you two hundred dollars. Damn. Yeah, I mean, if you sent me a thumb drive and I told you it was going to be, you know, $1,000 to recover that thumb drive, you'd be like, well, screw that. It was right. like it was only $25. <laughs> and so, you know, people kind of equate this uh, somehow. They equate the value of your service with the price of the device. Yes. And uh, it's it's not about that. It's about the data, right? I mean, it's you have something on your thumb drive and you want to get it back. And... I'm not looking at your thumb drive going, wow, I could buy one of these for $25. I'm looking at your data, right? So, and and, and that's kind of, because I think uh, you said earlier that we had a reader or or a uh, listener who wrote an email in, and it was, uh, you know, why repair these discs? You want to read that one? Do you have that one, Andy? Yeah, it's right here. Uh, It's the third part of his question. He says, with hard drive prices so low these days, why would anyone want to invest in the time and expense of repairing them rather than replacing them? This assumes, of course, that people are tuned in enough to back up their data. I also realize that a, quote, geek factor of hard drive education is part of the appeal here. But from a practical standpoint, forensics, forensics and data recovery aside, why bother with repairing? So, uh, so when I heard this question, and this is a common question that I get quite a bit. You have to understand, we are not repairing this drive to use it again. Back in the day, when a drive was $20,000 for a 20-meg drive, well, maybe you repaired that one and used it because it was $20,000. Yeah. Today, none of these drives, no matter what we do in the class or what we do in real life, are going back into service. Once that has happened, we consider them disposable and dead. So we're not repairing them so that you could use it again. We're only repairing it. Because we can't get the data off unless we repair it. It's got to be functional. It's got to be runnable in order for us to recover this data. So we have to do the entire job as if we were going to rebuild this drive and put it back into place. But that's only so that we can recover this data, not for any other purpose. And so, uh, so that's kind of a misconception that I want to make sure that people understand is that, that, you know, maybe I can fix your flash drive. And when I say I'm fixing it, that that means I might have desoldered it and done something to it, and I've got you know a couple of wires hooked up to it, and I've been able to read it. But you're not getting that back in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> that you're going to plug that back in and use it, and I'm going to even tell you no way, because exactly what this guy said. They're so cheap. Why? Why would you trust one again? Right. I mean, think about it. It failed once. Even if I told you I fixed it, why would you want that again? Right. I would never put my data back on that again. And hopefully that would make you go, wow, I hope this drive doesn't fail. 
I'm going to do a backup. And that's the other thing. People don't do backups. Seriously. They really don't. I know. It's Larry who sent us the email. and I love how he put it. Um, if that people are tuned... Assuming, of course, that people are tuned in enough to do backups or backup. Nobody <laughs> does backups. They don't do backups. I mean, and people who are on laptops, they're like, oh, roaming around. And then eventually they'll go, oh, you know, I do really need to back it up. And then I, I know when your drive is going to fail. I always know exactly when your drive is because people are always like, well, don't they live five years? No, I'll tell you when it's going to fail. The day before the most important thing that you need it for. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it fails. It's always going to be that. So, you know, it's CPAs. On the 14th, so they have one more week, and on the 14th, that's when their hard drive is going to die because they got to turn. Yeah, well, it's you know actually taxes are due on the 18th this year because it's on a Sunday, Monday. Are you going to get a lot of calls during this time? Oh yeah, oh yeah. CPAs. I actually, it's a little worse than that for some CPAs and stuff that haven't done backups or people that are doing taxes, especially like you know small home companies that are doing taxes for other people. They um when it fails, they can't do anything. They're dead in the water until I'm done with my job. So I have had sometimes two CPAs sitting on the couch in the front of my office, just sitting there waiting for two days while I do their recovery. They actually wait in my office. For two days? Like they sleep yeah. there? Well, no. Like at <laughs> night, we go home, and they come back. And the, But every time I walk by, they're like, what about my data? What about my – and this happens every year, regardless of what happens. There's always – now they bring donuts and coffee. And so I'm happy about that because we'll have breakfast in the morning next week. <laughs> but uh, but they will literally sit in my in, – in there going, hey, my job is – you know, I can't do anything without it. It's amazing. And so, so, uh, you know, if there's any hope that I may get it back, they're waiting for that exact minute. The minute it's done, they're out the door with it going back to work. Right. So, yeah. So it's pretty awesome, but it yeah. does it does happen quite a bit. But it it brings home the point that people are people don't do backups. This is all there is to it. Yeah. No, they just and, and and today I would say backups are easier than they ever have been before because with the internet and being able to use things, you yeah. know, like a uh, crash plan, like I said earlier, where we've kind of reviewed crash plan now in our list of the other stuff and it's pretty awesome. All right, go and ahead for, tell tell us how awesome it is so cuz you got a lot of emails about that. Well, yeah, you know the the biggest thing uh, crash plan is multi-platform and uh it has the ability to store things locally on your own servers and remotely unlimited on a foreign server and probably from a price perspective it may not be the cheapest overall but it's uh it's the cheapest for multiple computers and multiple setups and uh fairly robust in its syncing process and everything so it's fairly impressive and you know even it's uh it's one of the few that has a great front end uh for Linux so if you're doing Linux stuff um, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, again, I'm still a big Dropbox fan and, uh, you know, and then we have some other services that are now kicking in like Amazon cloud service just kicked in the other day. Um, but you know, from a cross cost perspective, I think crash plan actually looks like it's a, a, maybe a clear winner over all the others, multi-platform and everything. So it's, um, it's pretty awesome. And I would highly suggest any of you that have clients that are CPAs to hurry up and get them on some sort of backup. Maybe crash plan is the way to go and, uh, and get them <laughs> online with a backup now a week before it's too late. <laughs> all right. Good. I see that guys. Scott researched it and likes it. I think, yep. I think some guys will be happy about that. Yeah. That's um, good. Hey, uh, I have to ask you this, and I'll probably ask you almost every episode because things change so fast. Uh, back to SSD drives. Where uh, if you had to buy one today for your own personal use, which one would you buy? What do you recommend? Well, uh, so here's the thing right now, kind of about SSD drives. If you're actually buying one to put in your laptop or do something like that, um, really you want to look at the controller that your drive is running on. And right now what's happened is some of the manufacturers have decided, yeah, we're not going to build our own. And we're going to buy somebody else's and use it. So when you're looking at something like OCZ, they use another one called Sandforce. And when you're looking at SanDisk, they have their own uh, controller. Uh, really, the whole point is to focus on a better controller. And I, I would probably say OCZ. Uh, Intel, OCZ, and SanDisk are your top three drives right now okay. in that category. So I would probably focus on the other thing is to you know, make sure that you're checking to see if the one that you're looking at supports trim because you really need to be able to know uh, in future things whether or not it's going to be able to tell your operating system. Uh, even if the operating system doesn't support it today, maybe someday it will, and you need to uh, know that you have a solid-state disk, or you're going to limit your lifespan from, you know, you're going to kill it by two extra years. And so you're looking at a two-and-a-half, maybe three-year lifespan 
on almost all of these drives at this point in time. Um, understand too that some of these manufacturers have agreements with other manufacturers like Intel and Micron have an agreement. And so those two companies work together and their controllers may be uh, similar or the same. And uh, and the same is true of Sandisk. Sandisk sells a lot of royalty products. They sell you know stuff to Samsung and a bunch of other people. Um, so they sell a lot of their stuff in royalties and people are using their type of technology uh, and so that's that's kind of important. Like Sony, Sony uses SanDisk technology and all of their Sony memory sticks. Hmm. So uh, so it really just depends on knowing that. But you need to look at the controller and understand that. So look for a brand or controller or SanDisk, SanForce, and then do some sort of research on it. But otherwise, just get OCZ. You know, Kingston not as the you know Kingston changes their stuff every week. So I wouldn't be in any hurry to go doing a Kingston. I see or Patriot something. going on sale a lot. Yeah, uh, Patria is another one that's kind of like Kingston, where they don't always use the same manufacturers. They uh, they switch stuff a lot. I, I wouldn't put them, you know, them and uh, um, PNY. I, yeah. I, I'm not not so hip on necessarily. That doesn't mean that they don't have. They didn't buy a great one one time, and that maybe this particular one that you're going to buy works great. Right. But but from week to week, they may they may say, well, look, the outside case looks exactly the same, and nobody knows the difference. So we'll change the components and sell something else. And still call it the same thing. Hmm. And so that happens a lot with Kingston. Kingston doesn't buy a lot of the same stuff twice. Um, it's you know it's kind of like buying a Lacey disc or something. You don't know what hard drives are in there. They could be anything this week. Right. So right. Um, so just be aware of that. I would still say maybe OCZ right now just because uh, you know what you're getting and uh, Intel X25s uh, you know or whatever model from that standpoint. You know we're heading into a new category too with hard drives. I've talked to before about something called Light Peak. I don't know if you recall me telling you about Light Peak. Yeah, and well, the, no, well, it's, the, it's Apple. You calls it Thunderbolt. Right. So Apple calls it Thunderbolt. It's been renamed. Intel renamed it. Uh, so while it was in in its building process, it was uh, called Light Peak, and we talked about it before because it is basically kind of a. I told told you it's a transceiver that they figured out how to make a transceiver basically cost twenty five cents and put it on their reference motherboards, and so it can be used for a lot more than just drives. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like a USB interface. You could kind of do that if, as long as the devices have existed. And Intel did a demo like a year ago on how you could do all these things, and it does up to a 10 gigabit connection, and up to 100 gigabit is available. And so right now, um, Apple's the first to release this on a, a production uh, piece, of, piece of equipment, and so it's called Thunderbolt, and they're actually using the connector that comes off of the uh, same connector that they use for displays, right. so uh, DisplayPort, is now the Thunderbolt connector, right. kind of like FireWire and a couple of the other things. Uh, you can kind of daisy-chain things together up to five devices, I think. But if you had a RAID array and it was able to deliver content fast enough, now you're going to go faster than even USB 3.0 is going to be able to do uh, because you've got this new connector that actually is talking in a much, much higher uh, capacity uh, throughput than any of the other devices that we have. And so as we're heading down this line, you may be starting to look at drives that support these higher uh, reads and writes as well um, going forward. And that's one of your options. And there'll probably be other motherboards or other things that are supporting it. Again, it's an Intel platform, not specifically Mac. So Mac may be one of the first ones to release it, but this is an Intel development, not a Mac development. Is it it's a stupid name. Are they going to name it something else? Is, is, is that an, a, the Apple name for it, or is it still going to be Light Peak in other areas? No, no. no. no uh, I think that's the actual okay. name that Intel renamed Light Peak into Thunderbolt. Okay. And so Thunderbolt, which is kind of confusing because like two days after that, they released an HTC phone called Thunderbolt or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. So already I'm sure that there's some lawsuits or something. <laughs> whatever, but, is there but, any uh, devices out there that support Thunderbolt right now? Uh, I think there is a rate array. Uh, no, as soon as Apple released uh, theirs, almost like the same day, Intel released uh, new solid-state drives that support the connector for Thunderbolt or something. So I, I haven't I haven't physically touched it or done anything with it, but apparently they have some higher-speed drives now that will do up to like 300 megabit per second throughput, and they can actually communicate better if you're on an array with Thunderbolt. So there is some sort of array and Thunderbolt drives that can be, you know, connect or connected over the Thunderbolt connector. And so we're still only a month into this, so yeah. we haven't seen other than the demo that, that Intel originally gave us. But, uh, you know, a single drive, you're probably not going to get anything close to that throughput. The closest you're going to get is these solid-state drives from Intel, which may not even be on the shelf yet. But uh, Thunderbolt, at least from a standpoint of talking to, say, a RAID array or a SAN or something like that, would be really awesome. 
So, take, let me take it back to trim real quick for a sec. That, so you you mentioned trim, and that Windows Seven is the only thing that really supports it right now. Yes. So, is to me that sounds like a huge factor in picking out a drive, a solid state drive right now, because if you're going to increase the life of it by two years, that should definitely be something huge. They're thinking about it, especially if they're using Windows Seven, right? Yeah, I, okay. I agree. I agree completely with you. Uh, the the big thing is to understand is that a drive that's for sale today, even though it doesn't support trim, trim is a software function. And so they keep doing these, I can flash your drive with a new update. Oh, okay. And so, so okay. they could make a drive that's completely capable of it tomorrow. This is actually how Intel released uh, one. So when Trim was first available, the first Intel drives didn't have it. And they did a flash update to update the Intel X25s to to include Trim. And so it's it's because it's all software. It's not hardware-based gotcha. at all. Okay. That makes then, sense. Uh, yeah, so understand that fundamentally there's not a lot of differences between one solid-state drive and another as far as uh, how – because you're really just talking NAND and a controller and a processor. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it is code. And so when you're actually updating your drives or doing whatever, you're, you, it could be a completely new version, could do something completely different than the previous one. And so there's no real hardware limitation from that standpoint, I except see. for through, throughput. Throughput's the only real thing, because that's all based on how much cash you have for the most part. I see. Cool. All right, we might as well, Scott, um, we could, because we could, that email we read from Larry, who asked about, um, you know, why would you want to fix a hard drive? Uh, he's got two other parts of the question. We could read them now in the other emails if you want. Or, sure, sure. Oh. Go ahead. Okay, so uh, Larry writes, uh, good stuff on the last show with Scott Moulton. You guys triggered a few more points. Uh, all of the causes of hard... Uh, one. Of all the causes of hard drive failure, which one or two reside at the top of the list? Why don't we hit that up first? Okay, well, uh, one of the first things that causes hard drives to fail is your power supply. Your power supply is the most important component in your computer. When you've got a crappy power supply, it will fry the board on your and do physical damage and cause chips to blow and cause the PCB board to actually blow up, set on fire, things like that. Um, bad things happen to your hard drive first and foremost. A lot of the things that we end up doing is repairing PCB boards, the printed circuit board that's connected to the hard drive because of some horrible power thing. That's such a shame. Because a power supply is the most boring for me. It's like the most boring piece of your computer. Uh -huh. And you're telling us we need to get good ones. We have to put more money into that. It is the most boring piece, <laughs> but it is also the most important piece because if you don't have good if you don't have good throughput for power, then everything else can get damaged. That makes sense. All right. So, so that's the first thing is is the board, the power supply. The second thing is the second most seen damage actually is from dropping them. Uh, and, and it seems like a simple thing to fix. It's just, you know, a lot of external drives are standing up like they're a tower. And, you know, they look really cool because they stand up on end or whatever. And then you'll be typing on your keyboard and accidentally hit it or knock the table. And it just falls right over right. and causes physical damage. That is probably the second thing that we see the most that is avoidable that you could fix. Uh, so, I mean, we do see firmware and other problems, but, you know, I was kind of focusing on what's avoidable that, right. you know, keeps you from doing that. And, um, you know, hard drives standing up on on their end is really a bad concept as a whole. Uh, it's fine if it's in a case or something, you know, a, a full tower that's not just going to fall over. Right. But when you're talking about on the edge of your desk, it just falls right off. Same thing with these portable little hard drives. Same things with those. Um, so now on, on solid state disks, the things that we see with the USB thumb drives and things like that is most of the time the USB connector just snapped off. You know, things like that. People put too much pressure on them when they're in their laptop or whatever, whatever else, and it causes the little connectors to break. And uh, so that happens really often. Cool. Good. On part one, let's read the second part. Considering the similarities of components that make up or go into the production of a hard drive, which factors determine whether a product will result in a really good hard drive or one that's just so-so, and how can the buyers tell the difference? All right, so if you're buying a hard drive, there's a, there's a couple considerations that you might want. The very first thing is, is enterprise editions do matter. If you buy an enterprise edition, then the components that are on the enterprise editions have been... So, for instance, chips have been baked longer. They use a better quality chip or controller or processor. Uh, connections are a little bit better, or they're using gold instead of, you know, some tin or something that they actually have for a connector. So, so that's one of the first things is looking at an Enterprise Edition over, say, a $20 cheaper, you know, green edition or something like that. Uh, typically, the ones that say that they're green or that they're more economical or not made with whatever, cause it, they 
they die more. They're more often to be disposable. Really? Do- dollars make a lot of a lot of difference. The more money that you spend on a drive, in some cases, that is a much better drive. Hmm. Uh, so, for instance, if you really wanted a good drive, we should all just stop using IDE SATA drives, and we should all just go to SAS and SCSI because those are the good drives. <laughs> the ones that we're using are crap by comparison. But the cheaper the drive and the more that you're trying to save, the more likely you are looking at a problem with there. The other thing is uh, be aware that Western digital hard drives, um, all except for the Enterprise Edition, the Enterprise Editions are good drives. The, uh, the Western digital standard drives that they sell, there is a screw that goes through the lid that attaches to the head assembly. And if that screw moves or that screw got unscrewed at all, one screw, one single screw, it will change the head alignment and your drive will no longer work. So there is a, there is a component uh, in, you know, there's a portion of the community in data recovery that have talked about whether or not changes in temperature that could cause the lid to shrink could actually cause this screw to move and shift the head alignment and cause it not to be readable again or over time uh, as metal contracts and expands over a five-year period of time. Why would they do such a boneheaded thing? It's always been that way for the last 10 years that I can remember. It's just always been, except for the Enterprise Edition. Enterprise Edition drives, they actually have a screw internal blocking the head assembly down as opposed to the external being through the lid. Right. And so uh, so I, I think it's and it's the only manufacturer really that I can think of that does that. Uh, every other manufacturer has got something that locks the head down internally uh, so that the lid has no bearing on what is actually going on internally. Right. So, uh, so that's kind of my big problem. Uh, you know, Western Digital's have some board problems. Uh, some Seagate's have some firmware problems. And Hitachi's now, you know, uh, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Western Digital now says that they've made a bid for Hitachi, $4.3 billion, and that supposedly Hitachi is now going to be owned by uh, Western Digital. Really? Oh, yeah. So that reduces us from, uh, so Western Digital's will be gone. Toshiba bought Fujitsu, so they're gone. So all we have left now is four or five manufacturers because we got Samsung, Seagate. And Samsung tried to buy Seagate, and Western Digital tried to buy Seagate. So uh, both of those failed. But ultimately, the fact doesn't look good for Seagate that they're looking to be bought up. Uh, But you're looking at Samsung, Seagate, um, Western Digital. There was Hitachi, and then there's Toshiba. Um, That's pretty much it. Hmm. It's getting a little scary. Especially- yeah. Well, you know, the less drives there are, the less I have to worry about uh, <laughs> variety. You for you, yeah. It's probably a good yeah. thing. All right, let me read um, another one here we got from Adam. Hey, Steve and Scott. First off, thanks for another amazing, amazing podcast from the PodNuts Network with the MHDD podcast. I wipe all my customers' old hard drives and then drill through their platters with a drill press as a courtesy and to cover my butt. I used to use Acronis data destruction features on True Image Home 10, but that would tie up my bench PC a lot. So I've been wanting to get a dedicated device to help wipe hard drives before I destroy them. At my local computer shop, I found a device called the Weebe, W-I-E-B-E, Tech Drive Eraser. That's E-R-A-Z-E-R, model number D-R-Z-R-2. It was on clearance for 50 bucks. You can find more about it here at, let me give a link, but it's a Google link. It's at uh, Weebe Tech. Com. He says, I was wondering if Scott had any opinions on this device and how much faith I can give it that it does a good job getting rid of my customer's data. To my knowledge, my customers don't have any government secrets, so I'm not looking for any sort of 50-pass solution. Just something I can be confident that the info is virtually unrecoverable. Of course, if someone with millions to spend on data recovery found the hard drive, there's no telling what is possible. But that aside, what do you think? Also, what do you think about my combination of wiping the hard drive and then drilling through the platters before throwing them in the trash? Can I be reasonably confident confident that no one with bad intentions will be able to recover the data? Thanks. That's from Adam from TechHead PC. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, so uh, so the first thing is uh, wiping the drives before you drill through them is a fantastic practice because you can actually verify that it's been erased before you've drilled holes in the platters, making it almost <laughs> impossible for someone else to recover them, even though there is still a slight possibility that uh, they could have repaired just the drill. But wiping it first, you only need for, and you know, it's a misconception that people think that you need 35 passes. Current hard drives for the last 10 years, there's no way you can use a magnetic force microscope or anything like that uh, uh, in order to do microscopy to actually recover this data. So that's a, that's a myth at this point. It's not really feasibly possible. And so, so, so you only need one pass is what you're saying. 
one pass. You only need one pass or writing, uh, making sure that you've written everything over all the drives. Because usually what happens, though, is that there's one thing that people miss, which is called the bad block table, basically. Uh, so you basically have on all hard drives, when a drive is writing data, we know people know they've heard they have a bad block. Uh, list or bad block table and that the drive has bad blocks well what happens is it writes from in in a sequence across the drive it'll write data and when it finds a spot and the spot says oh look i wrote some data but it was bad now it's going to make a bad block list and it's going to add it to the bad block list and it's going to move the content to another secret location the problem is is that when you go to erase them the drive will read along and it'll read to the spot where it sees the bad data was originally and say, oh, it's no longer here. Let's go to the new secret spot. And it doesn't go, it doesn't do anything on the original location where the data was first written. So you could have written data that had your password on it, you know, five years ago, and that bad block is still going to contain that data, right. even if you wiped your drive. Because most of the drive software will wipe an entire drive according to its logical progression, including its bad block list. So, uh, so this is where that gray area comes in. So he woke, he wiped the drive, which would include all of those, but it would not actually touch this bad block area. So if there was a thousand bad blocks, you got 512 bytes times a thousand. So you end up with a chunk of data that's going to still contain content in it that you know, if a, you have a data recovery professional may get that data back. So if you're the DOD or the DOJ, that's a big deal. If you're, you know, you know, Bob down the street, not a big deal. Who cares about his secrets enough to spend $10,000 doing it? So, um, so he has a great process here for wiping the drives and then drilling a hole in them. Um, now he asked about, and, 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 oh, by the way, this means the difference in software. So in other words, if you get DBAN, which is a common program for wiping a drive. Derek's boot nuke. Yep. So, DBAN is a common tool to actually use to wipe a drive. It does not do anything to the bad blocks. It only erases the content that has been pointed to, so it'll it'll point to the new place where the bad block wrote to, not the old place that it originally was. So, uh, so if you're wiping it, that's one of your choices. But there's another choice for drives that support it. There is an ATA command, which again was added into the firmware on the drive, that has something called secure erase. Now, Secure Erase was uh, was done by the Center for Magnetic Research and Recording, and basically Gordon Hughes asked the ATA command committee to ask, add this particular command so that the DOJ and the DOD could wipe drives without spending any money. And it basically wipes them by track by track, including the area where the bad block was written. Okay. The downside is not every single drive supports it. So most drives after 2005 support this command. But prior to 2005, it's kind of hit or miss. You don't know unless you've tested a drive to see if it supports it or not. The command will tell you if it supports it or not because it's a free piece of software and you can go to the Center for Magnetic Research and Recording and search for HDD Erase or something like that, .exe. And you'll find this uh, program which you can execute from your motherboard to erase including the bad blocks and we'll get rid of this content. Hmm. The, drive, the drive will do it much faster than something like uh, Boot and Nuke. Boot and Nuke actually does all your commands and does your calls through the API or through the BIOS to actually talk to the drive, whereas the command from the uh, secure erase command runs in the processor on the drive itself. So you actually tell the drive go. How do you and know? Then, how do you know if it ha if it actually will take care of the bad blocks with that drive erase? Uh, I mean, well, with that secure erase. Uh, well, exe. Well, well, that is what it was written for. That is why it exists. So but you that said is some blocks, you said some drives don't support it. How right. would you be okay, able to know? So when you uh, start the program and you want to run it against the drive, it will tell you uh, I support this drive or I don't. Because okay. this program only does that. I got you. Now, this is where we come to the question that he had about using WeebyTech's uh, drive eraser. So WeebyTech's drive eraser... Uh, it basically has two models, and I don't know which of the models he has. There's a standard model, and there's a pro model. And the pro model can do secure erase on drives that support it. When it doesn't support tr the secure erase, the command that I just talked about that would erase the drives, including the bad blocks, it would automatically fall back to single pass with the random data. And so basically uh, the standard model, which is probably what he's got considering that it was for sale on on online for 50 bucks or whatever, uh, is it just writes a single, it does the exact same thing that Derek's boot and nuke does, except for one exception. Uh, I don't think that Derek's boot and nuke, uh, I don't think that DVAN does anything with HPAs. So uh, you have a host protected area. 
Um, what that means is I can tell a drive that's bigger that it's not really bigger uh, or a, a different size. So in other words, I have a 200 gig hard drive and I could say, you're a 40 gig hard drive. And it writes this to a secret area on the hard drive called the system area. And every time you plug this into Windows or you plug this into another computer, it will say it's a 40 gig hard drive, not a 200 gig hard drive. Right. The uh, model number and serial number didn't change, but the amount of sectors that's available to the user did change. Huh. And so uh, this, is a, this is a software command to make the change to say I'm a 40 gig hard drive, but you have to do it specifically. You have to, there's a special command to do it. Well, uh, Driver Razor does have a command that basically overwrites it. It ignores the parameter that says I have an HPA and overwrites and wipes the area that doesn't have an HPA, which Derek's boot nuke or, or you know any almost all of the other tools that were being used to wipe drives don't erase, and that content still remains there. And so, uh, so if somebody like a uh, and, and these HPAs or DCOs, uh, device configuration overlay or host protected area, they come up a lot in like Dell hard drives and HP hard drives and things like that because they have like a u utility partition. And that utility partition has, you know, some some tools in it to, you know, boot to fix your hard drive or something. Right. But you could add other stuff in there. I could make an HPA. I could do it. I could do it. I do it every day. You could just make an HPA and put data out there in another partition, and you wouldn't find it if you didn't know how to clear an HPA. <laughs> and at least using Driver Razor, it will overwrite that data. He is safer using Driver Razor and then drilling holes. Uh, and if he's got the professional model, he's even safer because if the drive supports secure erase, it'll do the job faster too. Um, because it runs in the processor locally on the drive, a 500 gig hard drive will erase in two and a half hours. Whereas a on a standard pass, a 500 gig hard drive might take eight hours or uh -huh. something like that. Well, I hope right. he has the pro version. I hope he has the pro version too, because uh, that'd be pretty cool. Maybe he'll write back and tell you. But, uh, but the pro version does support the secure race and the standard version doesn't. So that's the, that's the biggest thing. But uh, I, you know, the only bad thing about the Weeby text uh, thing is that, uh, it doesn't really have a good display to tell you what it's doing. It has a couple of blinky lights. I know. And then, it doesn't look like it has any display. Just some lights, right? Yeah. it's And that's the thing I really didn't like the most is that I didn't – I like to have confidence in what is actually being spit out that tells you something. And so I, I'm not as impressed by lights. I would have <laughs> – I would have been a little bit more impressed if there was a little LED screen that says, you know, what it's writing or racing or verified or something. And, you know, I, I would have felt a lot more confident about how quick it was to use because without this display, it just makes it really hard to know. Yeah. I know. Uh, it looks I'm, so easy to use, though. <laughs> it is. I, I mean, it's uh, we've used it in our office. You hit a couple of buttons, it's done, and, you know, but it's just hard to kind of always yeah. know with just some blinky lights and right. you know, it, I'd feel more confident if they would put something on there, even if it just had like a serial port out that you could plug into a laptop and pull up a log or something like that. Yeah, or yeah, just, yeah. Good you know, point. That would have been really, there are some older tools that I've used that did that, that just had a serial port out and you plug it into your laptop and you bring up something like terminal hyper terminal or something. And it would just show you in serial what was going on. And, uh, the, I, you know, that way you don't have to spend any money on a display. Right. You only spend it on the serial port. So, but good info though. Good point. And, um, like I said, Adam, we hope you got the pro version. It'd be a good deal for 50 bucks. All right. Before we end off, Scott, um, why don't you tell us, uh, you have any announcements you want to make or you want to plug your site, anything on your site? Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, I don't know how many people have gone to the new site cause I have a, a new website and I have a lot more stuff I've been updating all the time. If you go to the uh, presentation page now, it's beautiful. Thank you. The, uh, new logo, new everything, the, uh, presentation page. If, uh, it, when you're on the presentation page, I've now been updating at the top of the presentation page. I put all my newest stuff. So it's kind of building a log. It has a blog area and has a couple other things, but I have uh, two new books that I basically wrote and published. I've been getting a lot of questions about the solid state stuff. So at the top, you'll see a solid, a solid state, like basically it's a graphical kind of novel, a hundred pages or so that actually shows you, uh, how a, a, how solid state basically works. And so, uh, fundamentally, that was one of the biggest things on uh, how solid state works. And then I have another white paper below that that's all about um, uh, how 
the research that I've done on what happens with the click of death and what actually happens sector by sector when you're, you know, working on a drive and trying to figure out what's actually causing uh, the physical death of the of the drive itself. So those are some new things that I've got that I've thrown up on my site. If people wanted to, a lot of times they want them in color. And so I passed this off to Lulu. And so Lulu press is basically running books and they have like full color versions. If you wanted to have one, say uh, I get a lot of engineering companies that hire me to come and take a look. Like if they're doing embedded products, they may do an embedded, uh, um, solid state drive and they need to know which ones are the best ones under certain certain performance conditions. So they'll hire me to come in and look at uh, what they're doing currently and advise them of which of the solid state drives or which one's going to perform best, whether it's an embedded drive or a flash drive or a USB drive or an OCZ or whatever. And we do some tests and stuff, but a lot of them want to have printed material about how solid state works and the engineering people will go over it. So that's kind of why I did that was to uh, have this colorful book that people could uh buy and have you know to demonstrate or talk to other people how to do it um upcoming i have some classes uh so i have um the the biggest one is going to be my atlanta class coming up in june in june uh, 6th through 10th i have a atlanta data recovery class and we're spending a lot more time doing solid state and doing physical rebuilds and some soldering and so uh, that's the biggest class i have uh following that I have a class in Chicago, and then uh, I have a class in Dallas next month. So if you're interested in the classes and you want to know more about solid state and repairing solid state, uh, I have some seats left. You can see them on the right-hand side. It tells you how many seats I have left uh, for each of the classes. And uh, you got about six weeks or so before, before uh, that class actually starts. And so feel free to sign up or do anything look, with those. It looks like all previous classes were sold out. Yeah, I, uh, I do sell out. Uh, traditionally for almost every class that I've ever done. Um, there's a few exceptions where, you know, sometimes I get a case where, you know, 10 people sign up and then uh, in the last minute I do with a lot of forensics people and, you know, last minute two guys might have to go testify in a court case or something like that. And then <laughs> they'll just, they end up just paying half price or they end up, you know, subsidizing the whole, the whole thing for the class that they missed, depending on how soon in advance that they've done it. But, uh, awesome. but uh, it still sells out whether or not, they come or not is their problem. <laughs> <laughs> Get your tickets fast, guys. Yep, yep. So, hey, hey, it's always fun, Scott, and completely and utterly educational. Every, well, thank you. Every time. Yep, it's good talking to you. I'm happy to always be on, and, and I appreciate you having me here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's your show, man. All right, well, let's uh, let's wrap it up. That's going to be it for uh, My Hard Drive Died, episode number 15. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We should have another one out to you soon. And uh, we'll see you later. Music provided by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King.